0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and thank you for being here at Grace Community Church for our Sunday morning service. I am always grateful when people are praying during the service. I imagine I'm going to see a lot of that prayer today. Uh, This has been a big weekend uh, for the students and for the student workers that Merge. I'm excited to hear how the Lord uh, has begun to work and, as Lee was saying a while ago, will continue to work in your lives. Uh, Well, this um, verse that we just sang of this song talking about the second Adam, we'll get to that when we get to the text. It's a really important part of our text and it's an important part of our life with the Lord. But I want to begin this morning by asking you, do you think, would you say that the state of the world is improving or declining? We're always making progress, right? Um, Do you feel better about our future as a nation or more pessimistic than you were, say, five, ten years ago? Do you feel more hopeful about the state of your health and prospects for different members of your family? Or are you um, guilty of worrying far more than a follower of Christ should I know your answer to a lot of these questions is going to depend at least somewhat on whether you are typically more given to optimism or pessimism. But if that is the only criterion, then it seems that we have a whole lot more pessimists in our nation than we did maybe 25 years ago. There is good news for believers, though. We have the promise of resurrection. I hope that the text from two weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 to 34, was as encouraging to you as it was to me. And I think it has been encouraging to a lot of us to think about the resurrection of our bodies at the end of time when Jesus returns. Not that the, that the pain uh, of physical ailments or relational conflict or financial struggles can be ignored uh, while we happily anticipate the resurrection. But the Bible does point us to the hope of eternal life when suffering threatens to overwhelm us. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is another example of how the the misguided theology and behavior of the Corinthian uh, church is a help to us because of Jesus uh, or the teaching that Paul gave on, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. In last week's text, Paul addressed two things. One, the, the Corinthians' belief in the resurrection of Christ. They were like, yeah, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But also he was amazed that they too did not believe that we will be resurrected at the end of time. They continue to object to the notion that a decayed human body can inhabit the heavens. And so that's where we pick up in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. Since we're going to the end of the chapter with limited time, rather than reading a portion of the text, I'm going to open in prayer in just a a moment and then get right to the explanation of the text uh, with application coming all along as we go. This is a wonderfully complex teaching on resurrection, but a couple of little keys will unlock it and help it to make sense, or at least I hope that is the case for all of us. So before we begin, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do pray that you will open our hearts and our minds and our understanding to this very important text of scripture. Lord, it tells us not only that this life is not all there is, but what to expect and how we can expect you to work all through the ages and that ought to make a difference in the way that we think and live our lives right now. Lord, I do pray, especially for those who have had a very long weekend, that you will help them to hang as they're able, and um, I pray that you'll help us all to hang and make us able to understand this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Three points of application to the message today corresponding to the three different sections of the text. As is so often the case, and, and, and I think a lot of people miss this point, but a great deal of the application is just in understanding what Scripture means. A lot of times if you don't know what it means, then it's, you're trying hard to say, okay, well, how does this apply to my life? But once you understand it, it's like, oh, I get it. Okay, so three points to the message. First, we should never underestimate and we should never fail to appreciate the magnificent ways of God. Excuse me. I was tempted here to speak of the magnificent works of God because when you think about it, the resurrection is a part of God's creative powers and process. But, When you reflect on the ways of God in his word, in the world, and in our lives personally, it causes us just just to stop and marvel at the ways of God. Second, the promise of a future glorified spiritual body, probably should have had some commas in there somewhere, must inform the redeemed spiritual mind in the present. So what's going to happen then makes a difference now. The word must is meant to be provocative because our theology cannot be separated from our behavior. And our eschatology, or what we believe about the end, will inevitably affect how we live. So speaking of eschatology, the third point is the last enemy, death, will be utterly destroyed. Therefore... Always abound in the work of the Lord. Three sections in 1 Corinthians 15 in our text today. I had several stops and starts and trying to say something profound about this third point in a sentence or two. But you'll agree with me when we get to it. The text speaks for itself. So the first section of our text is 1 Corinthians 15, 35-41. We're going to jump in starting in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Remember how they were saying, okay, Jesus, we can buy Jesus' resurrection because he was only in the ground for a couple of days. Three days total from, from start to finish. Three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But not... Us. I mean, some people are going to be in the ground for, at least, we know, at least 2,000 years since Jesus' resurrection. So what about them? And so they ask, with what kind of body do they come? And then Paul responds, good question. No, he doesn't respond that way at all, does he? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For all flesh, not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Of course, Paul wrote this before people were identifying as kitty cat. Well, no, I should have said that. I've just got to to move on. So Paul continues here in 1 Corinthians 15. His teaching of the resurrection of believers' bodies at Jesus' return. And he begins by answering a question that has been asked of him. Or uh, perhaps to soften the blow of verse 36. He he posed a hypothetical question. But it could be the kind of question that these people would ask. Um, So... Paul's response in verse 36 was the equivalent of us saying, Idiot! What kind of a question is that? Now that's really harsh. And we really ought to think about it for a little bit. I mean, is this the way we are supposed to talk to people in debates that we have for them? Now you you need to understand uh, that this was not a question that was asked in good faith. Such as Paul, this is a difficult concept for us to grasp. Could you elaborate on this a little bit? Not at all. I mean, it was mocking laughter followed by something like, Ha, come on, Paul, you're talking about a zombie apocalypse. Well, they probably didn't use that phrase, but that's exactly what he was that what was happening. They were Laughing at him. Mocking him. How are dead people going to live again? Paul was using godly wisdom that he had learned from Proverbs 26. And thus he answered appropriately. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. But then verse 5 says what feels like the exact opposite. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise In his own eyes. So verse 4 is kind of like, don't dignify that with a response. Uh, Kind of like politicians when they're caught in something, you know, and somebody accuses them and they say, I'm not going to dignify that with a response. But sometimes, truly, it just contributes to the foolishness if you try to respond to somebody. But there are other times where you need... To have a direct response. And the query that Paul had received. About resurrection. Called for a Proverbs 26.5 kind of response. And it was good for those asking the question. Who by all accounts were believers. And so their spiritual status. Their understanding of God and his ways. Necessitated this stinging Rebuke. So I'm just going to say right now, please do not use this response lightly. If ever, never respond to an unbeliever's questions with such a spirit. Maybe in some cases if it's a religious person who is mocking the gospel or if it is um, a Christian who is thinking about Going in a heretical direction. Even so, you, maybe you, they need a rebuke, but you need to be very careful. One thing we can all remember is, we're not the Apostle Paul. So don't just be talking like this. But understand that there was a reason Paul spoke as directly as he did. So back to the text. In response to these questions, Paul informed the Corinthians that they needed to go no further than their gardens to understand how resurrection works. When a seed goes into the ground, it's buried, if you would, and it dies or it lies dormant before it begins to sprout and becomes this amazing plant that you would have had no idea. What if you didn't know anything about gardening or farming and you saw somebody put a seed in the ground and you're like, what are you doing that for? And they said, you just wait. You would be amazed, right, when you saw what happened later. How does it happen? Look, a farmer might be able to tell you, or a scientist might be able to explain the germination process, but when a seed becomes a plant that produces beauty or healing or sustenance, <laughs> well, it's amazing when that happens, isn't it? Make no mistake, though, if you plant corn and you expect okra, you're going to get a surprise. I think everybody ought to plant okra, right? Fried okra. That's how you get into my security questions. That's my, you know, fried okra. That was it. Now I've got to change it all. <laughs> It's wrong. Paul was saying it's wrong if you expect the resurrected body to be like the one that went into the ground. Now, as we're going to see later, there will be recognition. But it's a different body. It's a different sort of body. Fashioned for heaven. If you can believe in creation, and Jesus' incarnation, life, death, burial, and resurrection, how difficult is it to believe that God will make us new as well? I'm always amazed when people say, well, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but I don't believe in all those other miracles. I'm like, "I, I don't get that. Verses 40 to 41. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. My goodness, our God is a God of delightful variety. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But as the heavens are higher than than the earth, Isaiah 55 tells us God's ways are higher than ours. And as we mature with age, our bodies begin the process of decay in earnest. Our spirits, though, are renewed. And we begin to sense that there is much more to this life than meets the eye. So in in some ways, you know, our bodies are here, way up here. But as we get older, they start to decay. But our spirits are renewed. uh, And we become more mature as believers as we are time with the Lord and in His Word and with God's people. We understand, we begin to understand the process of life and death and life in little ways and big ways. In our own lives, the suffering we endure that we are certain can never be redeemed somehow is. Think about just the most awful thing that happened to you when you were younger and you thought life will never be any good anymore. And yet it will. You know, when I was at camp, I would say this. Every Friday night at the campfire, we'd have testimonies at the campfire. And so with everybody sitting here with their shirts on, I feel like we're at the campfire. And so I'm going to say it. You know, when you're a teenager especially, you look at life through eyes that will be different in about five or six, seven years. And you will never again look at life the way you're looking at it right now. But if you're not careful, you will make decisions that will impact your life in a negative way. Right now, when you're not going to be thinking like a teenager in just a few years. Life is going to be different. You'll think like an adult. A couple of exceptions in the room. But you'll be thinking like an adult. No, I'm kidding. For the rest of your life, I must have a mirror, right? So, But even as adults, things happen to us and we think, Where's the good in this? It can never be good again. And yet God redeems these situations and brings about beautiful things. And while the resurrection of the body seems distant to minds and hearts that are conditioned to think no further than the next exam or the next bill or the next birthday. Contemplation of God's ways in life and suffering and death and especially Resurrection will have a profound impact on our ability to trust God when life doesn't make sense. The redeemed will praise the wisdom and beauty of God for eternity. As you read 1 Corinthians 15 one more time this week, preferably as a family, stop to marvel at God's ways in nature and in your life And you'll get a glimpse of the truth of our second point. The promise of a future glorified spiritual body must inform the redeemed spiritual mind in the present. So must is a strong word. When we read these verses in a moment, you might be a little bit confused. Thinking that Paul is delineating between the natural body of this existence and a spirit-only existence in heaven. But he's going to talk about the spiritual body. He doesn't mean the spirit. He means the body that has been glorified, fit for eternity. The language might be a bit confusing, but remember, Paul has already disabused the Corinthians of any such notion That there is a spirit-only existence in eternity. So, spiritual body equals glorified body, without which we will not be able to stand in God's presence, in His glory. He must give us those bodies, or we couldn't handle it. So, for the younger... A little for the younger, for the older, you can't handle being there without being glorified. Perhaps if we call 1 Corinthians 2:14 to 15, it will help us to understand the language that Paul is using in these next several verses. And it will also help explain the meaning of this second point. So 1 Corinthians 2:14 to 15, Paul said the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, on the other hand, judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So in other words, we are in this natural body right now. And yet, we are considered spiritual if we belong to Jesus and if we pursue wisdom that is given to us by the Spirit of God, found in God's Word. When we are resurrected, we will be given a spiritual or glorified body when Jesus returns. Verses 42 to 45. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. became a life-giving spirit. So, as he did earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to Jesus as the last Adam. We are all born with a sinful nature because of the first Adam. Adam and Eve were created with original righteousness. They were the only people that ever had a choice whether to sin or not. You don't have a choice, right? You're born with a sinful nature. We have limitations at birth. And like I said a few weeks ago, it's true that we are sinners because we sin, but it's even more true that we sin because it's who we are. We're sinners. So, we have been infected with Adam's disease and there is nothing we can do to cure ourselves we cannot look within ourselves for help but all of us this need that you have inside of you that you want other people to agree with you so when you put put a post on social media you check it back in what four or five days Uh, To see how many people have like. No you check back in four or five seconds. And four or five minutes. And four. You know it just. We just. We need to be right. And we need other people to tell us we're right. But there's nothing inside of us. And there's nothing that anybody else can do for us. Because they've got the same problem we have. Adam. But then. The second Adam. The last Adam. Jesus came. As a human being, as God, 100% God, 100% Mom, 100% uh, 100% God, 100% Man. So Adam comes, or Jesus comes as the second Adam, gets right what Adam got wrong. And if Adam hadn't messed it up, I'm sure I would have. And then he becomes, thereby, the only eligible sacrifice, the one to take the punishment. The problem, to fix the problem that I have because I'm part of the human race, of Adam's race. Jesus was eligible to suffer in my place to take my punishment. And my hope is, only hope is in acknowledging my sinfulness, calling out to Jesus to save me. And although this body is going to die, I'm going to be made new. And by the way, I just want to say this now. I didn't plan to say it, but I will say it again. I think um, how important the humanity of understanding the humanity of Christ is. If you've been here long enough, you've heard me say it. I think there have been two or three times in my life where I have seen the moment somebody got saved. I mean, I see it in their eyes. I see it when the light comes on. There's understanding and belief simultaneously. It's like, I get it. Yes, I get it. Maybe, maybe not, but I think so. I think I've seen it twice. I've seen in people's eyes when they understand the doctrine of the humanity of Christ. It's like a light comes on in their eyes. And all of a sudden, a lot more theology opens up. Why? part of the Trinity, last Adam. It's He understands our suffering, his resurrection, our resurrection. So much <coughs> opens up when you think about Christ as the second Adam. All right, let's move on to verses 46 to 50. <coughs> but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. Shut up. Siri is trying to talk to me. I better I turn this thing off. Jim McLaughlin said on a couple of occasions, when I ask one of those questions, especially at the first of the sermon, Siri will say, that's a good question. <laughs> if only Siri would listen a little more carefully, don't you think? Well, um, so, where was I? Okay. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. We're like Adam, right? But we're going to be like Jesus. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven or who are saved. Just... As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. We are going to receive new bodies perfect glorified bodies. And yet, every indication is that we will recognize one another as we recognize one another here and now. We're made to be unique individuals and yet we're all made also in the image of God. How sad being made in the image of God that we seek to be gods on this earth. This powerful, just righteous, wildly creative God. We're made in His image. And yet we spend our lives trying to develop our own image. And if we could be God's, we would be. Although we live in these frail and failing bodies, we have opportunity, even now, To reflect and radiate the justice and love of God. David Paulson helps us understand this. Quote, people value being strong and independent. But the dynamic of weakness and dependency makes Christ matter in your life. And when Christ matters in your life, he shines through your life. People see the evidence of something wonderful. The hand of another at work. In you, close quote. In other words, people see the hope of something beyond themselves really, something beyond this world, even. Do not deny the weakness of your body and the first Adam who still lives in you, but recognize that you have been made in the image of God. And if you are a believer, He's working all things together for your good. And for God's glory and conforming us into the image of Christ. And that's beautiful. It's it's probably not as beautiful as what follows in 1 Corinthians 15, though. As we get to this last point, the last enemy, death, will be utterly destroyed. My grammar helps on the computer did not want me to use utterly. But I have to. Death is going to be utterly destroyed. Therefore, always abound right now in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians. You, you've read this text many times before maybe. Read it as though you're reading it for the first time. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. That's why the hymn we sing. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Maybe, it was sur- surely my favorite contemporary. Come behold the wondrous mystery. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The first time I ever heard that was put outside of a church nursery, I thought it was funny. I still do. It's, it's hokey. I know. In a moment, we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this imperishable or this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And wouldn't it be great if the trumpet would sound before we got out of here today? It would be awesome. Michael Horton gives us his best effort at explaining all the benefits that are are, are ours from this truth. Quote, When we are glorified, we will never be capable again of turning back into ourselves. We will have being, life, and goodness to the fullest extent possible for a creature. We are not going to have another run at fulfilling the mission that our first parents squandered. And if we did, we would forfeit the prize as well. You know how people say things like, when, when, when they're facing death, they say things like, I had so much more I wanted to accomplish. It's, it's, it's really not the best understanding of the life that God has given us To glorify Him and to do His work in this world. Yes, I understand that sentiment. But think of how many people the age of those wearing that beautiful funky mauve, whatever shirt that is, have given their lives for the testimony of Christ. A lot of people have died, even as teenagers, because they refuse to deny Christ. So, what are we living for exactly? Only for God's glory, ultimately. And and part of his beautiful plan, and he's blessing us right and left. When when people say, it's all about God. Yes, it's all about God. And God is all about us. He loves us. And he does these awesome things. Sometimes they they don't seem awesome at all. But he's doing good things. I, I was talking to my friend Denton yesterday, and I just want to throw this in. He was talking about Philip Melanchthon, who was Martin Luther's right-hand man. And someone came up to Philip Melanchthon and said, Why won't the Lord help me and give me strength and cause me to quit struggling with this sin that is so prominent in my life? I hate it. I don't want to be sinning like this. Why can't I get victory over it? And he said, and, and be holy. God calls me to be holiness. And Melanchthon said, because then... You would be depending on your holiness. And you're in big trouble when you do that. That's the sentiment that Michael Horton captures. Look at the fourth line right towards the end. We are not going to have another run at fulfilling the mission that our first parents squandered. And if we did, we would forfeit the prize just like they did. The image of God, which pertains to the whole person, body as well as soul, is natural, while glorification is supernatural. No human except Jesus has ever experienced this kind of glory. Just imagine if we were a shouting church, what we'd be taking <laughs> off with right now. It would get out of hand, I fear, when we read the next verses, 54 to 57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, And the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And that verse deserves an entire sermon, but not going there. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So keep this in context. You recall from verse 20 of this chapter that death is the final enemy that will be defeated. How shall we respond when we're facing death? We're going to respond in different ways. My mother, who was as close to the Lord as anybody I've ever known, died in surgery. And she was so happy as she was being wheeled to surgery. It was only later that we were told that she had mentioned to two nurses, I'm going to die, I've been called. Now she was, man, she was ready to go. She couldn't wait to be there. Then I've known preachers and people who were godly, who were not looking forward to death at all. We weren't created to die. It's natural, but in in, in, in a sense, it's unnatural. Adam was created to live forever. We will live forever. But we die because of sin, and death is an enemy. And do not let anybody ever tell you death is your friend. It's not your friend. Death is an enemy. And and a lot of people respond to death, some like my mom, I hope I can respond like she did, and some like Jesus at Lazarus' tomb, wailing over the cost of sin. Jesus' wailing was purer than ours because he was hating what sin had caused. But praise God, because of Jesus, death doesn't have the final say. It does not have the victory. Death has been defeated, and although we deserve eternal death because of our sin, even as we try to keep the law, we will be raised from the dead if we believe in Jesus and given immortal bodies. So what about the time between our death and Jesus' return? 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that when we are in the body, we are away from the Lord or away from his presence. But to be away from the body, that same chapter tells us, is to be at home with the Lord. So even though our bodies will sleep in the grave until Jesus returns, after, after we die, they'll sleep in the grave Um, We will be with the Lord, at home with the Lord, and very possibly given some sort of an intermediate body. The scripture doesn't really speak to it, but that's the best guess that we, again, will be able to recognize one another in heaven as we wait for the resurrection of the bodies. Believers, just know this for sure. Believers do not pass from life to death, but rather from death to life. And what should this knowledge do for us now? Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So teenagers, I have a challenge for you. I am flying out this afternoon to Australia so, first of all, I would ask for prayer. It will be 21 hours of flying between here and Sydney. i leave this afternoon and get there Tuesday morning. And coming back is way worse. So, thank you for praying for me. But when I get back, I will. I, my plan is to preach on Palm Sunday. Get in Friday afternoon. And you might be saying, you know, that might be that zombie apocalypse he was talking about. Um, but... When I show up on Sunday, Palm Sunday, I would love it if you would come to me and quote that verse. Whatever translation you choose, your reward will be ten dollars. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. And even finish saying it, all right? Your reward will be a lifetime of help and strength. When life doesn't make sense, and there's a lot of life that doesn't make sense it makes a whole lot more sense when we're in the Word and we're given these eternal instructions. As we close this morning, I want to read from the evening liturgy found near the beginning of the book, Every Moment Holy. As many times as I've promoted this, I would hope most of you have two copies by now in your home. This particular reading comes from the Liturgies of the Hours, Nightfall. It's a great gift to give to people, even those who don't profess faith in Christ. When Allison and I give it to people, we'll often say something like, you know, at some point, I'm guessing this book is going to be a treasure to you. You may not open it for five years. You may just put it on the shelf right away. But when you open it and start looking, it's going to be that kind of a blessing. Hear these words from near the end of the liturgy of the hours nightfall. Retire now, you children of God. Remember, you're reading it at night, okay? Contemplating his words and resting in the peace of the surety of the love he has extended to you in Christ. Know this night the comfort of his spirit, whoever abides in and among us, Drawing us always toward our ultimate redemption at the renewing of body and soul and of all creation. Praise be to God for his mystery yet to be revealed. Indeed. An hour is coming when we shall find ourselves free at last from the very presence of sin and liberated to live eternally in that glorious freedom and knowledge and beauty and perfection which was ever our intended birthright. Adam messed it up. Jesus made it new. Even now, O oh Lord, in the dark of this night, Let our lives be lit by rumors. And he's using this as Tolkien used rumors in Lord of the Rings over and over and over. It's a certainty. It's not a rumor. It's a certainty. Let our lives be lit by rumors of these coming glories. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, your word so beautiful and so difficult and, and so life-giving and so encouraging. And we pray that you will take the truth that we have received from 1 Corinthians 15 from beginning to end, starting with the gospel and then promising us that we will live eternally in these bodies that you created, but they will be all sorts of different bodies as well. This perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal, the immortality. We long for the day when the trumpet sounds and we will be with Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission.